Welcome to season two of the Coalition for Disabilities podcast. If you've been an avid listener of the podcast, you know that season one was titled Queering Ability. For this season, we are adopting the title Including Ability. I'm the host for this season, Sarah Shopper, and I currently serve as the research coordinator for the Coalition for Disability with ACPA Student Educators International. Today, I'll be talking about providing an accessible classroom experience with our special guests, Mark Poussin, Assistant Professor at St. Louis University, Heather Stout, Accessibility and Wellness Program Coordinator at St. Louis University School of Law, and Matthew Sullivan, Assistant Director, Disability Services at Washington University in St. Louis. Let's get started. If you've been binging all of this season's episodes, you know that this season is all about the monograph published at the end of 2021 titled, Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, A Practical Guide to Champion Individuals with Disabilities on Campus. You can find this publication for free at myacpa.org and a link is provided in the notes to this podcast. I've invited the three authors of chapter nine to be our guests today. And again, chapter nine talks about providing an accessible classroom experience, which is what we will talk about during our time together. Mark, Heather, and Max, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thankful that you were able to join us um, today for this conversation. As you each know, I've already shared with our listeners the topic of your chapter. So let's go ahead and get started into having you share with our listeners a little bit more about why you decided to contribute to this chapter. Mark, let's start with you. Sarah, first, thank you for this opportunity to share what we have done with all these listeners who hopefully are binging. <laughs> so it's it's a great question. I uh, so when when I got I got wind of this offering to participate in the monograph from uh, a former mentor of ours, Karen Myers, who was um, on faculty here at Saint Louis University, um, and when she retired, she oftentimes shoots things my way to say, hey, pay attention. And then when I get something like this offer, I immediately started thinking of who do I know that I'd like to play with in the sandbox? And Matt and uh, Heather came up as <laughs> playmates for the sandbox. So I reached out to them and said, you want to do this? And they both enthusiastically said yes, as well as I did. The reason for contributing to this chapter, I'm um, that I was thinking about mainly was how to continue a conversation for faculty and also student affairs co-educators, because in many ways, it's how to look at student affairs practitioners as co-educators in the field, particularly addressing what an accessible classroom may be like. Um, many times uh, when I have talked with faculty in the past before I uh, assumed a faculty position, um, I would talk to faculty about their pedagogical uh, skills, and I would often ask them, do you teach how you learn, or do you teach how you've been taught? And many times, it's that conversation about how to direct them past their own learning style or their own um, history of being taught in terms of who's in front of you. So in this case, this was a great opportunity to offer some ideas on how to create an accessible classroom so that all their students are have full access to the information um, in, in that classroom. Awesome. Um, share with us a little bit more about why you wanted to contribute to this chapter. 
in our field, which is already a smaller field, you really get to develop in-depth relationships with your colleagues so that you're not just operating in your own bubble and you feel alone because you start to realize that there are other people out there not only supportive to the work in disability services and resources, but also supportive to their colleagues. So with Mark, what he said of uh, Karen Myers, who is one of my mentors and who has worked closely with all of us, she it's kind of a right place, right time with her because when she's thinking about something, she has a unique ability to attract people like a magnet who just makes her then bring up the opportunities and she's a person it's very difficult to say no to. And I would say that's the same with Mark and Heather. So uh, part <laughs> of it is like, we wanna be able to continuously contribute back to a field that has given us so much through mentorships and connections with our colleagues. And what Heather had mentioned, we have all had the opportunity of uh, working in, a, in the same position at St. Louis University. And as that institution's mission is to educate um, within its mission itself from the Jesuits to reach out and build community and uh, work with others uh, from a component of service, but also just to enhance the knowledge base that exists. The Jesuits were called to the margins. So from our work within disability services, being called to that margin and helping bring light to not only the components of social inequities, but also then disability as an identity basis it's always just very eye-opening for me as I continue to learn and grow in the field of the opportunities that exist uh, to just further connect with both Heather, Mark, and other colleagues to seeing, okay, how can we keep pushing the needle forward? At the beginning of that, you had said, um, you know, it's nice to have folks who um, I know in the field because it can kind of be lonely. Were you talking about or what field were you talking about when you made that reference? Yeah, I do uh, specifically reference disability services. I probably, from a year standpoint, I've been in the field for about 11 years now. Okay. Um, with that connection in the field of disability services, yes, it can sometimes feel lonely, mm -hmm. um, but that it only feels lonely when we start to create that own silo ourselves. We are mm -hmm. a department in an area that is charged and is called to working with others because accessibility related needs and disability can touch anyone at any time at any point in life. Mm -hmm. So that's then kind of the opportunity to knowing, yes, we work with everyone. And we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes that we do work with everybody. But just as we educate our students to reach out when they need support, we have to take that advice ourselves to reaching out to our colleagues when we need support as well. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying. But Heather, did you want to add anything to um, how you learned about it? Well, I was going to share that um, just because of the nature of the role I have, I am actually not involved in ACPA, which, which is unfortunate. So I wouldn't have really learned about this had it not been for Mark um, mm -hmm. and Matt. By learning about it, I also had a chance to read those other chapters, which was great because I probably wouldn't have been aware immediately of the publication of the entire document. Mm -hmm. So not only was it great to be able to work on this chapter that the three of us created, but but just the entire monograph itself. Because again, I know different organizations, ACPA are working on some great projects, 
I, I just am not currently an active member. And so I wouldn't have even heard about it or yeah. had a chance to learn directly from the organization. Awesome. That's exciting to hear. Beer chapter, as I said at the very beginning when I was introducing you all, um, is about accessibility in the classroom. Um, I'm going to ask our um, authors today if they wouldn't mind sharing with us their experience with that topic. And so we've learned a little bit, like little snippets of some of your backgrounds. Um, but if maybe you want to think about um, an experience that you would like to share or just sort of generally sharing with us a little bit about what do you, you know, what is your experience with accessibility in the classroom? And Matt, I'll have you start. Certainly. So. Um... From a broader standpoint, I am a practitioner. I work as a, an administrator within disability services. So my full-time role and kind of what I've committed to as a professional has been more so from the perspective of working with dis disabled students, working within their classroom and how to create accessible environments. So I'll focus more on that. Uh, and I did mention, I do work with disabled students and I choose my language very carefully. I look at disablement and disabled as a an identity construct, but also from a societal construct that I believe um, environments disable people, humans create environments, therefore humans can disable other humans. So from this component and looking at an academic environment from that lens and creating accessible learning environments for students, we have to first understand what has been created and constructed that is creating access barriers. So for disabled students who are coming to college to learn within the academic environment, what is already obstructing their way to participate in an equally accessible manner as their peers. So then to help understand that and work with our faculty and our colleagues just saying, there's a better approach because we both have the same goal. We want this student to learn. We want all of our students to learn. So let's approach it from that spirit and that mentality. Just as Mark previously mentioned, we need to look at the spirit of the ADA and disability related laws to then fully understand how do we implement um, activities or uh, resources for our students so that they can then experience the spirit of that law instead of the approach of, well, my faculty has to do this because it's required and we have to be compliant. Mm -hmm. Because nobody really wants to work with somebody else who's approaching it from a side of, well, I have to work with you. Yeah. Um, that kind of just demeans and it tears down the work that we do as practitioners and as individuals who want to educate our students on what does being disabled mean? How yeah. is that a completely unique and diverse aspect of life that can contribute to society in no other way that other populations can? Yeah, well, and I would think that on the other side of that, well, maybe nobody wants to, like what you said, um, do something because they have to do it because that's what the law says. It's really, um, a lot to be wanting to help someone learn and not doing all you can um, to help them with that. And so you end up maybe spending more energy and more time um, trying to, to figure it out. And um, if there's a, a person you can go to like you um, that might be able to assist in that, um, how wonderful that can be. Because you can't know what you don't know. Um, 
And so I liked how you frame that in terms of having the same goal. And both you and Mark kind of brought up the, the concept of disability and how it's written um, on the front of our title, but um, also just in general, what it's what the understanding of it is. And for our listeners, if you are not binging this podcast, which is fine, that's a choice as well, um, you maybe have not heard the conversation um, and the episode on chapter three, which is about defining um, disability. And I really encourage you to go check that out because I think it really adds some um, interesting thoughts to some of those things that have already been brought up just in this conversation. Of course, all of it in the end is really interconnected. So I've, I would just encourage you to listen to all of it. So if you're starting with this chapter, make sure you go back um, and get the previous ones and then also just finish up the monograph series. So 10 chapters, 10 episodes. So we made it easy for you. Heather, how about if you share with us a little bit about what your experience is with the chapter topic? So sim similar to Matt, I come out of the practitioner side of, of sort of this relationship um, and um, have been in this, doing this kind of work for about 20 years. Um, one of the pieces that I really am fascinated by is when there's an opportunity to talk to faculty about the design of their course, the instruction materials that they're using. Um, it's, it's another piece to talk with the student about where are the functional impacts that they're experiencing. But I certainly don't make presumptions about what should be done in a class to make it accessible. And so that's why the conversations with faculty are so interesting. And though I, this chapter and this entire monograph is clearly for our colleagues who I'm guessing mostly are practitioners, I do think that this could be incredibly insightful for faculty um, or future faculty. Um, and I also try to make sure students understand that, you know, I'm not gonna make presumptions about the faculty you're working with and the way that their course is structured. So we may need to have some discussion about that. It's very interesting in my current role because um, just for, for listeners um, or for people who are, are uh, participating in the podcast, I'm in a, a law school environment now. I had not previously that I've been here for about two and a half years. But anyway, um, within the law school environment, the faculty member is engaging in um, anonymous grading. So they may not know anything about the test that they're grading at, you know, at a given time. And so they may not know that that person has accommodations, for example. So there's not nearly as much um, discussion with the faculty member about uh, a particular student. So more of the discussion is about your course as a whole and what we might be able to, to look at, what are things that you can do, or what are things that you are doing and already that make the experience accessible for the students. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I just was gonna mention something about the three of us. I think all three of us have very different backgrounds in terms of what brought us into, Mark alluded to it, um, Matt came out of a higher education background. I actually came into the field from a rehab counseling background. Okay. And I think that's what makes our field very interesting is that 
everyone may have an entirely different path that kind of brought them here. Um, so. Absolutely. Well, and so interesting and insightful too about the way law school works. Um, what an interesting um, experience to have where you're discussing with the faculty overall how the course is going versus just an individual student. Because as a faculty member currently and then previously um, full-time, um, oftentimes it was very easy for me to um, just think about a student um, who maybe has disclosed to me and the um, disability services office on campus. Um, but it, working on this monograph and then some of the life experiences I've shared have challenged me to, to reframe how to think about that. Um, and and I, should, I should add, it, there are of course accommodations that we are implementing in the classroom environment um, that involve the need to discuss logistics. So if we're going to have cart in the classroom or if we're gonna have equipment in the classroom, um, if we're going to be recording or something of that nature, of course, I'm talking to the faculty member, but there are a lot of things that may be discussed at the undergraduate level in terms of accommodations that really my discussions are with our registrar and our dean of students mm. um, and not with the faculty member. But that's not to say that the student is still receiving the very same accommodations in most cases. Um, and so there's no change in that. It's just a perhaps there's a different uh, group of individuals that are then implementing the accommodations with the student, so. Yeah, so you mentioned a cart. Um, if I didn't know any better, I would just genuinely be thinking about like a cart with a projector on it that you bring in to watch movie in the classroom. Is that what you mean? I, um, sorry to use acronyms. I know that's okay. a terrible thing. So um, I, what I was referring to, an example of, of an accommodation that might be implemented in the classroom itself that I would absolutely want to discuss with the faculty members so we can brainstorm the best way to make that happen was uh, real-time captioning. So um, if a student is going to need real-time captioning of audio content in the classroom, um, then we might bring in someone who's doing uh, essentially the equivalent of courtroom stenography. Uh, that's how I describe it to my colleagues here, certainly because they have the law you know, um, background to understand the courtroom stenographer. That's what I was referring to, was a service that we might be utilizing for an individual who may have, say, hearing loss um, and want to have access to all of what's being spoken in the classroom. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Mark, how about you? Um, what has been your experience with this chapter's topic? As, as Heather and Matt have uh, talked about, I also was a practitioner um, working with students. Uh, and, and when I was in disability services, I gradually navigated toward doing more academic coaching with students with disabilities. And what I found was many times students had no idea about what their preferred learning preference was. Um, and so I utilized a tool that's it's free. It's called the VARC and it stands for Visual Aural Read Write Kinesthetic. Um, and it, it's been used quite a bit um, and also studied quite a bit. And so it's a 10 to 12 minute um, questionnaire that students can do online. And many times when students would come in to see me, uh, they would, 
I would ask if they knew what their learning preference was. They go, no. I said, well, let's take, why don't you take this real fast? And they, they got through it and they were surprised about what they learned. And so many times um, I would flip the logic on them and they would often think that because most faculty would use a read-write type of teaching style, that they had to conform to that, even though that wasn't their primary learning strength or preference. And I would say, no, it's, it's, that's one way to gather information, but how are you going to reinterpret uh, it based on how you learn? And therefore, a lot of the coaching was how to flip the script, if you will, for them. So that, that idea had brought up to me, and the beauty the idea brought up to me this idea that how we, I need as a practitioner to pay attention to context, the student's context. Um, and this was so in line with how the Jesuits look at education and they look at context first and then out of context, how do we create experiences for students, then how we set up reflective exercises and then how they put those things into action. Those are the, the, some of the components to the Jesuit tradition of education. So I began to think in terms of how to help students um, determine what their context is and how they then can communicate that to professors. And then in turn, to also to turn to professors and say, how can you be paying attention to the, the context of the students in front of you in order to then create with them uh, a learning environment that will meet the accessibility regardless of their learning preference? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been my, my um, foray into this topic. Wonderful. Thank you. And then how has it been beneficial for you to participate in this experience? I, the nice thing about it is, is <laughs> we've gone through several iterations, Matt and Heather and I, um, but I think if anything, uh, it was, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, my dear colleagues, but all <laughs> of us are rather broad thinkers. And so um, one of the things that we really had to work through um, and we're processing, we're probably verbal processors. We kind of just talk aloud a lot. And so how, how to bring all this down into something that is specific, specific that faculty and, and student affairs co-educators co can actually use and, and they have the how-tos. Because ultimately, I think all three of us have basically had experience with faculty that we were able to go, a lot of times faculties ask for how-tos. Mark, just don't tell me anymore. Just tell me what I have to do to get it done. And therefore, um, we have to sneak some of that educational pieces in. Um, but nonetheless, they really want to know how the how to. So their heart's in the right place. They may not always understand the, the um, theory behind it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, Heather, how about you? Um, how has it been beneficial for you to participate in this experience? For myself, I, I think it's been important to step away from the practice piece and, and to really talk about what, what are the ideas behind what we do and why we do it. I feel very comfortable in the, the position of, I'm working with the student, I'm, I'm, whether it's I'm, I'm um, learning from them about what's going on and what accommodations I should be looking at, but there's critical value in what are the philosophies behind why we do that? Uh, you know, and, and 
to put that in concise language, why we do what we do. It's so much easier for me to just do what we do and not step back and, and describe it because there are times, Mark, as you were saying, when the faculty or, or even students for that matter, or other colleagues want to have more of a discussion about why do we do this and, and what can we do rather than um, doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Matt? Piggybacking off of Mark and Heather, the reflection process itself in understanding, okay, when creating accessible classroom environments, am I just going through the motions or is there a method behind it? And how are we going about this? Why are we going about this? And what is the ultimate goal? So the opportunity to take a step back and get into a group and to be able to work with Heather and Mark and externally process a lot of this information that we, yes, we are doing this on a regular basis, but are we actually reflecting and being intentional and in the art of, yes, this is what we're doing, but in order for others to understand what we're doing, it's important to really dissect the why behind mm -hmm. all of it. And just as what was mentioned earlier, the spirit of what we do and really and truly, it's to create not only an inclusive and accessible classroom environment, that, that is what the chapter is about because we're focused in higher ed, but the more we start to create and enhance accessible environments within our colleges and universities, that trickles out to then being able to creating an, a, more, a more inclusive and accessible society. So from a micro level, being able to just reflect and talk with colleagues who have a similar perspective is rewarding in itself. To then actually understanding, am I doing what I should be doing that is aligned with the purpose of what we're doing? Um, it's always nice um, and it helps us reframe and then reset. So yeah. being able to then go back through the chapter even after it's been written and fine-tuned saying, okay, am I doing this work even now? So after a year of writing it, I have to check myself as a practitioner because sometimes when I get into the motion of things, sometimes I then need to just take a step back from the work to saying, am I on the right path still? Yeah. Heather, were you going to add something? I was going to add that, uh, you know, when we started talking about this chapter, it was pre-COVID. And, you know, during COVID, the the... Uh, format of the classroom changed dramatically. And here we are today, still in COVID, but back in person. But I mean, the discussion of, of education tools, technology took a tremendous turn um, and, and evolved just within the matter of the, of the, the time from when, you know, the um, chapters were being written to the publication of the document, this whole monograph. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to, go, to get to know our authors a little bit more. Um, some of the things we maybe have already heard a little bit about, but um, I'm gonna ask each of them to share with us a bit about their educational background and then three words that they would use to describe themselves. And Mark, I'll start with you. I've had an undergrad degree in philosophy. So what do you do whenever you come out with an undergrad degree in philosophy? You go to grad school. 
um, because at the time I <laughs> at the time I graduated from college, there wasn't a whole lot of things you do with a philosophy degree. Um, so I went and I got a master's in education with an emphasis in counseling. And I uh, got to my uh, licensed professional counselor, so the LPC, to practice. Um, and then I decided to go back and get another master's degree. And I got that in um, social work. And so I continue to carry, and I, I got my clinical license, and I continue to carry my clinical license in social work to this day, um, but let the LPC go. And then uh, decided to go for a PhD, and I got my PhD in higher education administration. And uh, I often think of myself as a social worker in a higher education environment, uh, because in many ways, what I learned in my previous master's programs have certainly helped me with um, my work in higher ed. So it's it's been a fun journey in terms of like that. And every so often I'll get asked, well, you ever think about another PhD? I go, mm, no, um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a lifelong learner and I will find lots of ways to learn about my profession and my field as well as in other areas, but I, I don't wanna to have to go through a dissertation process again, that's for sure. Three words that probably would uh, describe me would be inquisitive, curious, and reflective. Thank you. Um, Heather, how about you? Will you share with us your background and three words that you would use to describe yourself? Sure. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology. At the time, I was planning to be a, a clinical psychologist. But the ADA passed. I am um, disabled and uh, was in college involved with forming a student organization for disabled students. And that put me in direct contact with the um, coordinator of the disability resource program at the college I was at. And through her was able to meet the ADA coordinator um, I mean, that was the ADA had passed, so the, the university had an ADA coordinator. Definitely, that was a mentor relationship for me, the ADA coordinator. Through her, I got involved in the institution's ADA um, self-assessment, which all universities, public universities, had to draft to identify priority list of where did um, access need to be improved. That and the, the ADA coordinator discussions with her really put me on the path instead of pursuing clinical psych, looking at disability in higher education. I wasn't quite sure if it would be the ADA side or if it would be the, the um, accommodations side, but um, I, I took some, uh, not quite a year off just for health reasons and personal reasons. Um, and started discussing um, graduate school with someone who became uh, my grad advisor. And so I chose the path of rehab counseling because at the time there were really two avenues into higher ed uh, and disability, but there was this growing one, which is now a very strong one, which is um, you know higher ed administration. But that really was a brand new, area and not many programs that I was familiar with. So I, I got my graduate degree in rehab counseling with the um, clear goal of being in higher ed uh, disability. And so 
started getting some experience at the community college level, was able to do some things. I got very interested in deaf services and contemplated going into deaf and hard of hearing um, services uh, and even did some graduate work in that area, um, but then was drawn back into higher ed. And so my first position uh, at the University of Illinois Chicago and happened to be working for an individual who to this day is uh, on staff with the head. So that was also a mentor uh, relationship. And so learned so much from him and um, was just really became very passionate about that. And he from very early on was talking about intersectionality um, and really working with the student and developing accommodations after you learn from the student versus, you know, documentation being the sole guide for how you identify accommodations. That was pretty um, not the norm at the time. Uh, you know, ADA was law, and, and I think many schools were trying to abide by the law and do what they had to do, and they were trying to figure that out. I've just had this opportunity to learn, work at some different institutions, private, public, small, large, and um, came to SLU in 2013. And the Jesuit environment is just so different. I really do value um, being in an environment where the message is about you know, serving the whole student and where they're at. Never thought that I would be working at a specific environment such as a law school. I really do enjoy it because one of my passions is about that sort of point where people are launching into their career. And we do it at the college level too and at grad school, of course. I, I'm still in touch with some of the students that are now lawyers and, you know, and it's just very exciting to see the development that people make. But anyway, I'm long story, but it, in other words, it was through a different um, avenue. It was through rehabilitation counseling, vocational rehabilitation counseling and interaction with ADA. I think three words to describe myself. I disabled as one. Um, okay. I, it took me a long time to be able to actually say that, but I do embrace identity language now. And I didn't talk about it in my college years because that was very uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm now in a different place in my life. Um, I also thought engaged and compassionate. Those were two other words. Engaged because I'm, I, I feel like I'm more involved in what I'm doing now. And um, and part of why I do what I do is because I have compassion about this field. I know I share that with these guys. So <laughs> those are the three words. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Matt, how about you? Can you share with us your educational background and three words you would use to describe yourself? So I began um, my undergraduate experience and got my degree in music education. So I was not um, anticipating really uh, going to college all that much. I was not a great student in high school. I, um, my GPA and my ACT were very low. I got into college on my audition. So mm -hmm. education in general was really not something that I thought I would thrive within, nor was it a desire or a passion. Um, 
but throughout that course uh, of time in music education, I started to then uh, really drift away from the educational piece because I was not necessarily wanting to go into the K-12 environment. Mm. And I then started a master's degree in vocal performance, which I did not finish. So it was a very expensive mistake, um, but I, a very valuable one. Uh, and then I had to really sit back and reflect and think about what I wanted to do next. And I had a fantastic mentor in my undergraduate program who was really, she was my voice teacher. And she um, worked with me throughout the discord I was experiencing when I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, I didn't know if it was music. I didn't know if it was education. I wasn't really satisfied or fulfilled. And I was trying to change my major my senior year, <laughs> uh, which would have just prolonged my undergraduate experience. And she sat me down and she said, Matt, do you, do you think that I know what I wanna do and what I'm gonna do every day? I said, well, yeah, of course, you're very put together. Uh, no, I don't know what the hell I'm doing any day of the week. I'm just a really good actress. And I thought, huh, you are a good actress. Uh, but also it helped me understand that there's a field for this. There, there's student affairs. There's people who actually, I found it through my voice teacher, but there are individuals who work with students who aren't faculty members, who aren't in the class with one particular subject, who still educate. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to understand and realizing that it wasn't necessarily education I was dissatisfied with. It was the type of education that I was pursuing. So I went uh, and moved to St. Louis and I got my master's from St. Louis University, which I was very lucky with an opportunity to go on board full time within their division of student affairs. And at the same time, began pursuing my PhD in higher education, um, which was all very um, exciting but yet at the same time if I would have told 18 year old me that in 10 years I would have a PhD I, I don't it, it would not have been possible but now that I look back in retrospect and thinking life will send uh, you challenges that you can either <laughs> embrace or you can just say no thank you and you can then approach other challenges so from that I got into the field of disability um, partly Karen Myers has been really prevalent in my life um, for a couple of reasons. She's really one of the first educators that I had who uh, presented disability in a completely new perspective and light to me that made me understand more fully the importance of self-understanding and awareness. And as somebody who also identifies as disabled and similar to Heather, it's taken me uh, a long time and the journey has been um, difficult at times because in our field, we're still emerging. The ADA is only 30 years old. So we don't know everything about disability yet, which is fantastic and frightening. All at the same time, um, I would prescribe to person first language for a very significant part of my career and a part of my personal growth. And I'm thankful for that. Of, always identifying as a person with a disability. And there are days I still associate with that type of language. Um, but then coming to a conclusion of what is disabled and what does that mean to me has also then opened up a new path of understanding and how I can not only navigate that path, but help students to navigate a similar path. And like I said, each day is something new. Um, and I make mistakes. I think everybody in this, this conversation now can 
probably say that, um, but it's from the mistakes that I can learn and I can grow and I can help our students, um, whether or not they are uh, students who firmly identify as disabled or emerging with those identities, helping them to understand that it is okay because everyone's journey is their own. Um, and it's been, a, I've been very lucky to have the opportunities that I've had in our field to be connected with colleagues who have kind of taken me under their wings and then helped mentor me and helped to tell me that I was wrong when I was wrong and who helped humble me when I needed to just kind of take a step back and think about how I was wrong um, <laughs> and then grow in that same light. Um, then when it comes kind of shifting gears, the three words that I would say to describe myself um, disabled and inquisitive were, were kind of two of mine, but so I'll switch gears just a little <laughs> bit. Um, and uh, the words are you intentional, uh, gregarious, and strategic. I'm going to flip things around a little bit. And Matt, I'm going to give you this next question first, since I've held off and you've had the questions last. And what I just heard was that there were two other words already taken. Thank you for providing some, some new ones. Um, and I'm going to ask you if you um, would share with us, if you could wish anyone in the world to know the contents of this chapter, who would it be and why? That is a really fantastic question. I wish I had an immediate answer of one specific person. It's, it's challenging to think about because it, I look at it from so many different lenses and viewpoints um, because each of us wants someone to understand disability in a different light. Um, and I don't wanna go down a political route with this, um, but I, I, in many ways, it's a group of people. Okay. I want, I want a group of individuals who may not have had the opportunity to see the uniqueness and the benefit of understanding life from a separate viewpoint. I want them to fully understand the content of the chapter and the monograph. I want somebody who hasn't had the opportunity to understand disability to have the opportunity to learn more about what does it mean to be disabled and what does it mean to create accessibility and the purpose behind it. Because a lot of times, even when we work with our faculty members, I don't approach that work as this faculty member just really doesn't want to create an accessible classroom. Chances are that is their goal. They just might not know that the approach they have is achieving that outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's always, I like to try to center myself from a stance of individuals make the decisions they make because they don't fully understand why there's another choice or why there's another design that could be more accessible and that could be more inclusive for individuals who are disabled or who just have different learning preferences and styles. To creating accessibility means to welcome others and allow them to feel welcomed in that, in that environment. Thank you. And that was fair to pick a group of people. That's fine. That works. Um, Heather, how about you? If you could wish anyone to know the information in this chapter, who would it be and why? I, I think for me, the, the audience that immediately came to mind were faculty who have a, a way that they approach their topic, their curriculum, and may not have an awareness of 
is that material the way it's it's developed been developed and presented is it accessible or not so the faculty member who may not um have the immediate thought of oh i'm gonna i'm gonna consult my you know my colleagues that um can help with development of curriculum uh methods to to look at is there another way that i could i've seen some faculty who are very committed and uh to the work that they do who maybe have copies of copies of materials mm -hmm. you know and 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 their intent is very uh, you know in the right place so maybe the ones who have made assumptions without even knowing that they've made assumptions um that would be the group and also the the ones who the faculty who and i say this with all due respect um who may not have an awareness that some of the language that they use or the way they present has communicated to disabled students that it's it's not okay for me to ask questions or to bring up an accommodation need I have mm -hmm. or, or a need for a different, you know, to, to ask some questions because of the nature of my disability. Um, because I think that happens all the time and we're not aware of it. I think that students self-select which faculty they're going to approach. And again, I don't think it's because faculty intend it, but um, and I'm not picking on faculty. I know we as practitioners do that too. I'm not, um, but because of the specific topic we have here, mm -hmm. I, I just, that was the group that came to mind was faculty who maybe are not aware of the, the mechanisms through which their, their um, content is being delivered. Yeah. If I'm being asked to do something differently suddenly, that that's hard and, and that's, intimidating and we all had to do it during COVID because we all shifted to I mean that, that kind of just blew us all you know out of the water in terms of preparedness for for what could happen but it it's hard and yeah. so I'm not saying they're the again the only reason I was thinking of that group was because of our topic here and who who are the ones that come to mind once faculty yeah yeah fair enough I appreciate that Okay, Mark, you know the question I'm going to ask. How about you? Uh, what color is the sky? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> nice try. <laughs> I know. Uh, no, I, I too have a group in mind, and it's the, uh, it's, I think it's all the stakeholders in the classroom. It's going to be students, uh, faculty, and also administrators. So from the student's point of view, I think this is a great chapter for them to read to get some information in terms of how they too can uh, better advocate for their learning needs uh, with faculty and also with um, administration. And by administration, I'm referring to mainly um, deans, chairs, and maybe even at the, in the, say at the provost level. Um, and even in terms of even looking at student affairs and all the representatives there. Um, when it comes to faculty, I think, again, that's, that's in, uh, how can they better serve the students in their classrooms? And I think this is a good chapter for that. From administrators, um, I think about how chairs as well as uh, deans could use some of this information to maybe incentivize faculty to use this information. So how can this be used uh, in a way for 
annual evaluations. Mm. Because if faculty were uh, knew that they were to provide accessible type of um, how to create an accessible environment was part of their annual evaluation um, that may incentivize them to actually learn and actually wrestle with what this might mean. So I, I think it's I think it's a valuable there's a lot of valuable pieces to the chapter and I think um, students, faculty, and administration could benefit from from this. And I am biased. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for responding to that question. Um, so let's take a moment to. Um, visit the chapter a little bit. And I've asked each of our um, authors today if they would select a passage and um, share that passage with us by reading it and then um, talk to us a little bit about why they found it meaningful and why they selected it. So um, Matt, I'm gonna ask you to go first and um, your passage is on page, starts on page 70 and goes over to 71. Sifting through wants and desires is complicated but discussing them creates more tangible results. It is the difference between wanting an A in Chemistry 101, but needing extended time on an exam to effectively process the material, which will in turn allow the potential of earning an A. Regardless of the outcome of the conversation, students' perceptions of their barriers to learning is critical to the co-creation of an inclusive learning environment. These conversations can strengthen the relationship between educator and student. And with this passage, why I gravitate towards it is it gets to the art of understanding another human. When it comes down to our own human nature, at least from myself, I gravitate towards connections and relationships. And in an educational environment, we vocalize and we communicate how important those connections and relationships are in order to understand the needs of others. From a student perspective, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to vocalize our needs or uh, to vocalize their needs and to advocate for themselves. But when they discuss the perceptions of the barriers they're experiencing or the tangible barriers they're experiencing, it then allows the faculty member not only to develop a deeper understanding of that person and of that student, but it allows them to then think through, am I educating appropriately? Or am I educating to a level that is allowing my students to learn effectively in this environment? At the same time, it does present a challenge to the student as well, because in academia, we know that um, vocalizing our needs or our concerns doesn't always come with, okay, fantastic, I will automatically give you exactly what you said you wanted or what you mm -hmm. needed. It comes with some uh, beneficial and productive discord in conversation. So if I were to discuss my needs with someone else, it allows them to then provide suggestions or to put on their educator hat and saying, oh, you're having difficulty um, interpreting and uh, transcribing notes in class and you're having difficulty taking notes. And it's, it's stemming from either attention or processing. Well, also, it's my expectation as an educator that not all students take written notes. The expectation is that you uh, attempt in learning and understanding the material through a variety of formats. So using a lecture recording device to go back to material to then repeat it and internalize it in a different manner, to talk with your peers in class about what they understood the information to be. Yes, to have a physically written document that you have, 
But it's not simply just that. The expectation is to fully engulf yourself into the course content. And I think sometimes when students learn that and understand and then see, oh, my barrier that I had the perception on was it's difficult to take notes because processing may be slower. But then when I vocalized that, it allowed me to understand from the instructor that's actually not their full expectation. Their expectation is to learn in a variety of different formats so that if I'm encountering a barrier in one personal activity, I can actually, I have permission to learn in a different way than my peers. And my instructor is here to walk with me side by side, hand in hand, um, to making sure that I can learn this information as my peers learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank you for um, discussing why um, you selected that passage. I think what you just shared highlights um, in that passage the concept and the importance of the relationship between the faculty member and the, um, the learners. Mark, how about you? Um, your, you select a passage um, on page 72 to 73, and it was the section on designing teaching materials or teaching methods to support diverse learning preferences. Yes, so it begins with mindful consideration of the diverse ways people prefer to learn, regardless of disability, allows educators to creatively design effective teaching strategies. A tool to assist students in ascertaining their learning preferences is the visual oral read write kinesthetic VARC learning preference questionnaire. Knowing students learning preferences, regardless of disability, can assist educators in creating a more expansive learning experience for students. This comes from C. Miller and Grace 2016 as well as VARC 2021. Regardless of whether the course is face-to-face or online, there are many creative active learning strategies to engage all students as active participants in the learning environment. Some examples of active learning strategies include use of collaborative small groups to encourage discussion and learning from other students, offering a course-themed study guide to be used throughout the course as a scaffold review of course material, and utilizing a mini lecture followed by interactive group work to solidify the course content. And this comes from Gravel et al. 2015, as well as Higby et al. 2008. And the reason why I chose this is because, again, thinking about how faculty typically ask for how-tos. Again, the idea of context, in my mind, is critical to understanding how to begin that co-creation of a learning environment that consists of both faculty and students. Student affairs co-educators are a part of this because many times they're creating programs that also have learning objectives and how are they thinking through the context of students who are attending said programs. So I don't, I don't wanna uh, dismiss uh, student affairs co-educators here, but I think in the end, these ideas really come from universal design in its different formats and I've had um, the opportunity to actually visit with Cheryl Bergstaller, who's a well-known ways in which faculty and, and student affairs co-educators could use. And like Sarah, you said earlier, it's just try one thing. And then if it seems to work, you can add on, but just try one thing and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I think that uh, one of the things I really appreciate about your chapter is the actual practical things that could be put into application. So, and there's lots of little different ideas in the chapter that are like that. So I hope our, um, those tuning in today will check out the chapter for all sorts of reasons. And I'm really glad you picked one that also had the VARC in there as well, based on what you shared earlier. And then to know that the resources for all these chapters are in the monograph. Um, so more of the citation, if you're trying to look it up and you do a Google search and it comes up with too many options, um, we've provided some of that for you. So thank you for sharing that. Heather, how about you? Your passage is on page 71 to 72 and is under the heading, Creating a Welcoming Classroom Environment. So it was really just that introduction to that section. So I'll, I'll read the, um, a portion of that. Teaching is relational by nature. One way to promote the teaching dynamic is the subject-centered classroom. In it, the educator's passion for the subject moves the subject into the center of the learning, thus encouraging active learning between the educator and student. This establishes a learning dynamic known as deep learning, where students learn to apply theory to practice by actively exploring and, quote, create, creatively organizing and processing language. The challenge for educators teaching in this manner is moving from an authoritative to a facilitative approach to teaching where a welcoming classroom is critical. There are multiple ways to communicate to students they are welcomed and valued. Um, we had several references within that uh, paragraph, Combs, Wang, Parker, C. Miller, and Grace. Um, the reason I chose this is because, and I think it goes far beyond disabled students, but um, is that I feel like the way that we start this whole process is whether the student feels welcomed and invited in the classroom to begin with. And when faculty do establish that um, sense of you're invited in my classroom to participate, to inquire, um, to, you know, to exchange ideas with me, that's when they may feel comfortable if they need to actually um, make other um, inquiries and, and if they need to bring something else up, um, if they don't feel welcome, there's, there's a likelihood that students may just remain quiet and may not actually make a, the faculty aware of um, specific issues that they're encountering. Um, again, going into, you know, my, my background as a practitioner, so many times students will talk about how they're intimidated in talking with faculty. That's also true here in the law school environment, particularly because of the, the anonymous grading process. They don't want to appear any less than their other peers. And unfortunately, disability is still lumped in that um, stigma of, that's going to make me less than. And so I just, I, I feel as we work towards making the classroom a welcoming experience that we're, we're going to allow students who feel uncomfortable about some aspect of themselves to feel, to embrace that more and to, to you know, really interact with the material that they're discussing in the classroom. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So before we um, say goodbye today, is there anything else that any of you'd like to share about the chapter? I was going to jump in and just say it was a joy to write. Uh, it, there is a gestational process when it comes to writing, especially with other, other colleagues. And I was very grateful to have this opportunity with both Heather and Matt to, to do this. 
Um, and the I think also to Sarah, to you and Amy as well, the the um, the guidance that you all provided was very helpful, um, especially as um, scholar practitioners as we are here. So uh, no, it's been it's been a great thing, and I hope that um, this chapter as well as all the chapters in the monograph are being uh, proved to be beneficial for a wide variety uh, in, in the audience. Um, and, I, and also, I'll just extend an invitation um, is that if anyone has any questions about the, the chapter or would like more information, um, I'm available if people want to have a conversation there too. Thank you. I'll just add one small piece. And the monograph really pushes out a challenge to individuals to start thinking about accessibility, start thinking about constructs in society that disable our fellow human and how at the same time disability creates diversity in society and unique perspectives that can really help us grow and learn and change how we approach education. And I, I just want to put out there that change is scary. <laughs> it is very, I mean, I Myself, I say that I'm great with change as long as I have a very detailed outline of how we will work through the change, um, which, which isn't how change comes about. Change has a lot of uncertainty, which can make it scary. And when it comes to accessibility and working with others, that uncertainty is present. So it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. But in those failures and those mistakes, ask questions. Uh, be thoughtful, be intentional, make a concerted effort to saying, I'm not an expert. Can you help educate me and helping me understand what you need? Mm -hmm. And as long as that effort is there, the environment can change and grow and really help uh, enhance the welcoming nature of the classroom environment for students. Yeah. I'm glad that I'm glad that Matt, you brought up this notion of the challenge. Um, I, I often think about what Karen Myers would often tell us to be thinking about, and it is a provo provocative question, and her question often is, who have you excluded today? And so that's a, it's a reflective question, and it's a challenging question because it may not be intentional. It's definitely, for lots of us, unintentionally that we have excluded someone today, and it's to call out how in our practices, we're actually exclusionary. So the, the call of this chapter, the challenge of this chapter is a call toward inclusivity and how can we participate in that inclusivity? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if I could add just a couple of thoughts, I, I think sure. it's easy to assume that disability is this very, as I was mentioning earlier, this tiny little field. Mm. However, the number of students that uh, utilize accommodations are perhaps in a position where they might request accommodations is a much larger group. The, the impact is tremendous if we are to adopt mechanisms through which we're improving the accessibility of the courses that we're teaching at our institutions. And so for colleagues, you know, it's really about, I hope that this this monograph provides some substance for you to be able to share because I think we are very aware that that this, the number of students is 
many and it's growing. And so by really utilizing some of what we've written about, we, we stand to have a tremendous impact and not just with stu disabled students. Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you for um, highlighting that at the end of um, our time together today. So that brings us to the end of this episode. I wanna thank Mark, Heather, and Matt for joining me today to discuss providing an accessible classroom experience, which is chapter nine of the monograph, Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. If you haven't yet had a chance to read it, I encourage you to do so. The publication is available for free and can be found at myacpa.org. A link to the publication will also be added to the notes of this podcast. I hope our discussion today was beneficial to you. And as always, thanks for listening to Including Ability. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us wherever it is that you found this podcast. Please also subscribe to our podcast and be sure to come back next week for a discussion about the inclusion of disability in ACPA's past, present, and future. Until then, this is your host, Sarah Shopper, and don't forget to include ability. This podcast was created by the Coalition for Disability, ACPA College Student Educators International. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Sarah Shopper. Including Ability is...